0: This is America'sWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio, designed just for you.
1: Addiction on America's Web Radio. I have with me today David Donaldson, the CEO of the Atlanta Healing Center, and we're going to talk about Recovery Month here in the United States and actually around the world. So, welcome, David.
2: Hi. Thank you. I'm very glad to be here.
1: This is an interesting program that was started a number of years ago. Um, I can't remember exactly how many.
2: Uh, I'm blank, too. It's well over 20.
1: Well over 20 years. Um,
2: They tend to do themes over 10-year periods, and and so I know that the themes for this this past um, decade or decade and a half has been... um, joined the voices of recovery, and I know that in the decade before that, they were they were talking about treatment work. So it's definitely over 20 years.
1: <laughs> National Recovery Month is actually sponsored by the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration, known as SAMHSA. I would like you all to get paper and pencil ready um, during the next... Um segment will give you more information about how you can find out more about Recovery Month. You can also find out about local and regional events that are in your state or in your part of the country. These are really fun events to attend. In fact, a couple of years ago I attended Recovery Day in Ottawa, Ontario, Canada. And there were probably about 500 people there. Most of the events are open to the public, and this one certainly was. It also was family-friendly. There were family um, activities, games, foods, giveaways. There were also some lectures about addiction and about recovery topics. And many of the local treatment centers as well as... um, in their case, the provin- prov- provincial. Provincial. Thank you. Uh, provincial treatment um, opportunities, um, state their state-funded equivalent. Uh, information about prevention of. Um, addiction and also about treatment. This is a joint venture, as you can tell from the name of the organization, Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services. So Recovery Month is not celebrating only addiction. Uh, recovery, but also recovery from mental illness and um, psychiatric disorders. So, some of the events are going to be mixed for both um, substance um, use disorders as well as psychiatric disorders, and some will be more specific for one or the other. Some states have a lot of activities, others have fewer, but they're very worthwhile and very interesting to look at and see what's in your area. So again, please have paper and pencil ready, and we'll tell you a little bit more about how you can access this data from the SAMHSA website. That's SAMHSA.gov. That's their website, SAMHSA.gov and it is uh, sponsored under the um, auspices of the United States Department of Health and Human Services. So you can also just Google Recovery Month, and you'll find your way there eventually. I would encourage you, again, if you are interested in celebrating, uh, developing, or hosting an event, there are ways in which you can uh, get really good information about how to publicize events, events, how to write a pe- press release, how to get um, an opportunity to use local media to give uh, public service announcements. So very useful information, and certainly while it's geared towards this particular month, it's not bad information to know for other organizations and other special months that you might um, want to promote and learn how to do that um, very efficiently and effectively.
2: What's What's interesting about SAMHSA is that they're a, they're basically a clearinghouse for um, for recovery information, for understanding the illnesses and, and the recovery, and, and current research that's going on. Um, so. Anybody from the public or that that's interested can go to their website and, and look up any topic they want and find current research and current thinking related to that. And they treat recur- re, um, Recovery Month in pretty much that same – um, that same format, they send out information to any organization that wants to, to throw an event, um, to help sponsor the event and help motive, um, promote the event. Mm-hmm. Um, they're not actually promote. They're not actually doing the events themselves, but they're supporting nationwide and and, and internationally events ha- taking place. So you can go to their website and find out exactly what's going on in your area, um, um, and in other areas, if you're interested in doing some traveling this month
1: like I say, they're very interesting and often um, helpful resources. If you're looking for treatment providers, if you're looking for, um, in the case of addiction treatment, if you're looking for a suboxone provider or a methadone provider, they have information about those different um, opportunities for medication-assisted recovery. They also have... Some very important databases that, for those of you that are just crying out to do some research, you can actually have access to these um, federally funded and supported databases looking at everything from uh, types of mental illness, rates of suicide, uh, different age groups, different ethnic groups. You can, you can actually go in and mine that data if you are interested in doing that. So it is a very open website. It's a very useful one and it's certainly one we're paying for out of our taxes so I would encourage you to take advantage of that. It's interesting, David, as um, as we were talking a bit earlier that since 2002, they've changed the the name and the theme of the different recovery months and they've added join the voices of recovery i think that's a a very interesting uh, movement and there's certainly a group called the voices and faces of recovery which is uh, one that is more openly promoting people's individual stories of recovery and people are outing themselves if you will identifying themselves as being in recovery and talking about their journey in the hopes of sharing their story and giving hope to other people who may not be so far along this is this has been a shift because for so many years uh, the Idea that you would let someone know <laughs> voluntarily and certainly publicly that you are in recovery, uh, not quite what happened, uh, but this is um, this is a new movement.
2: Yeah, it's um, it's it's really been pretty interesting. The the as you say, coming out experience, um, the, it's been happening in our society in so many different areas, and and I think that that for addiction recovery in, and in particular. Um, it's really been an effort to walk away from all the stigmas and the shame that are so affiliated with with having an addiction um, and and in particular with having some of these addictions that people have always thought of um, as really those other people on the mm-hmm. on the wrong side of the street with talking about um, crack cocaine or talking about heroin that that would not be a part of our families the theme this year is actually um, um, I've lost it but <laughs> the theme this year is
1: join um, the voices for recovery our families our stories our recovery
2: so putting families right up front that that addiction impacts most every family that I've ever yes. met and many many families you know all over the place it impacts families um, whether you're the individual with the addiction or you're, you love someone that's taking care of the addiction or, or your um, parents are dealing with the addiction, that families are directly impacted by it, um, as they really are with with all illnesses. Um, but this is one area where families families have to recover, too. Um, and, and family involvement is so crucially important for the overall success of, of a person's Process that putting them first and foremost in this whole join the voices and getting family members to begin coming out and sharing their stories um, um, is just crucial.
1: I think it's really interesting as individuals come into treatment and then their families join our family program, they have such an interesting awakening, an aha moment where they realize that they are not alone and that they've been holding in Inside all of the fears and their own shame and guilt around how did this happen to my loved one? What, why didn't I see this? What could I have done differently? So, just as the person with addiction is full of shame and guilt, we see that same thing in the families. And this process of getting families to talk to other families, whether that's in family group, whether that's in Al Anon, whether that's in um, other 12 step or Uh, religious organizations to talk about that experience and to do their own healing. And I do. I, I really like that they have emphasized the families here because that shows very clearly it's not just about, let's fix your loved one, and then everything will be great. No, we have to heal the whole family, and the whole family needs some recovery skills.
2: Part of what I, what I recently I've been thinking about with families in particular is, is finding out what's normal, Yes. Um, real often when we talk about codependence, we talk about them having to guess at what's normal because the home they grew up in really was a little bit um, abnormal. Um, but with families coming out and beginning to share their stories and talking about their, their own experiences, um, people get to discover, oh, that was normal for a family that's been impacted with addiction. Um, and they also get to find out those things are normal for families, whether addiction's in the picture mm-hmm. or not. Um, so it kind of takes a lot of the mystery out of of am I normal? Is our family just totally messed up and everyone else is perfect? Um, and, and so I... I mean that's something that we end up dealing with with patients in, in our groups yes. the the patient groups and the family groups on a regular basis that their experience is what we expect to see
3: mm-hmm. in
2: um, in an addictive home or in an early recovery home um, or in families that are just dealing with dealing with the stress of daily life.
1: And other chronic mental illness or medical illness, the impact that that has on the family where the focus and the energy and often the money uh, for the family is focused on one person. And that effect, whether it's that you've got to send them off to MD Anderson for cancer treatment or whether you have someone who is going back and forth for um, uh, treatments of diabetes or other illnesses, that focus is obviously and importantly on the individual who is suffering with the illness. But the family members that are left that are being potentially, uh, as they might see it, robbed of the attention of their parents or um, of their other siblings, there are certain ways in which this can impact regardless of whether addiction is in the picture. And that's really important to recognize. And I think that from SAMHSA's um, viewpoint that merging these two and, and letting people know that while the etiology may be different, they are brain diseases, and as such, they are going to create some similar problems for both the individual suffering as well as the family.
2: Well, And and they are both chronic diseases. They're diseases that impact the family for a long, long time and and demand the resources of the family for a long, long time.
1: We're going to take a break. Please get your pen and paper ready, and we'll be right back.
3: The disease of addiction is a life-altering challenge, not just for the person suffering its effects, but also for the family and friends who support and love the one caught in its grasp. Information is the key, and the trained staff at EHC is here to assist. If you wish, you can also get more information on the website located at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com.
0: Obamacare is failing. We all know that, but you need to know why and what you can do to get us back on the right track. Visit us at ObamacareWatch.org. This is Grace Marie Turner of the Galen Institute. Join us at ObamacareWatch.org.
3: Did you miss a show that you really wanted to hear? All of our programs are available for download on americaswebradio.com and on iTunes. You can listen to your favorite programs on americaswebradio.com anytime you like.
4: Perhaps you are struggling to cope with the disease of addiction. If not... or your loved one, can be helped to enjoy a better and healthier life. More information is also available on the website at www.atlantahealingcenter.com. This is America's
0: AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you.
1: Welcome back. I'm Dr. Susan Blank. This is detailing addiction. I have with me David Donaldson, the CEO of the Atlanta Healing Center, and we've been talking about National Recovery Month. This is the 27th year. Yes, we did check that during the break. This 27th year that SAMHSA has sponsored National Recovery Month. And if you would like to look up um, more information about Recovery Month or other very important topics that they have on this website, please go to www.samhsa.gov. That's www.samhsa.gov. Um, The Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration is funded by the Department of Health and Human Services and again, uh, lots of valuable information not just about Recovery Month but about mental illness and addiction. You can go in um, and click on a link that will allow you to look up in your state and your area of your state where you are... uh, having some access to recovery day activities and those are recovery month activities and those are often very helpful and I would encourage you to get involved if you are interested. One of the things that I think has been somewhat controversial, David, um, is this idea of the faces and voices uh, of recovery and also as Sams' uh, title is Join the Voices for Recovery, Our Families, Our Stories Our Stories, Our Recovery. This idea of giving voice to your own personal recovery has been a little controversial.
0: But
2: so much of the early days of of Successful treatment, successful recovery—not necessarily treatment, but recovery—has been in in the twelve-step programs, and and they started out with Alcoholics Anonymous, um, yes. and and then moved on to Narcotics Anonymous and and Compulsive Eating Anonymous and Gamblers Anonymous, and all of those programs have this real emphasis around anonymity. That um, in the, in all of the programs, they do readings about how how the twelve steps work and about their traditions of the the meetings and they all say anonymity is the spiritual foundation of of our program ever reminding us to place principles before personality so there is a strong infinite emphasis in every meeting on this is an anonymous it becomes a hard word to say the more you say it can't do it five <laughs> times fast um, um with a real emphasis on i can say That I was at a meeting, but I can't say that I saw you at a meeting or I can't talk about what I heard at or saw other people talking about at that meeting um, with a real emphasis on I'm responsible for um, keeping this place safe for everybody. And now we've got these recovery organizations Mm -hmm. saying, come out here and talk about it. And and that does um, make people anxious. You know, they're going to change the dynamic and then it's going to become unsafe for, for everybody.
1: So there, uh, there is the pro part of it, which is because of everything being so anonymous, you may not know that your next-door neighbor has just gone through trying to get their loved one into treatment and that they have some good resources and information and might be a support. You don't know the person sitting next to you on the bus might be in recovery. You don't know who is in recovery and who is not. Therefore, there's not a huge lobby for for people in recovery. There's a lot more um, openness and actual um, activism on the part of other um, chronic illnesses. Breast cancer, you know, there's a whole month of that and it's all painted pink. When you you see, even with mental health issues, NAMI and other groups have uh, really done a good job of advocating for... Um, a decrease in um, in prejudice decrease in shame um, and increased funding and support for treatment and research related to mental illnesses We don't have that collective group that speaks out and does say this is an illness we need funding we need support. Uh, many of the insurance companies, many of the local and state laws are not supporting our recovery. Our insurance companies won't pay for our medication or pay for our treatment. So without that strong lobby and that voice advocating for Um, understanding and acceptance, you know, part of the concern for many people is that as long as we keep it silent and anonymous, then we're not going to be able to get over the stigma of the disease of addiction. And yet, I think your point is very well taken.
2: That people have to feel safe to be able to come get the support and 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 get their needs taken care of um, when when they're um, being dragged down by by the disease of addiction and getting to a place where they're really disconnected from family and from friends and from their emotions and and feeling um, fear and shame, the anonymity helps them walk through. Mm-hmm. Um, through that and begin putting their lives back together so that part is crucial and and finding that balance between when is it appropriate to come out and share my story and when is it something i still need to keep um um, safe and private is it's an individual situation
1: and i think that that is the important thing that no one should be pressured to come out and tell their story uh people should be allowed to do that or not at their own um, best decision, because it, it really should be an individual thing. There are laws created around protecting the information about someone being in the uh, in treatment for substance use disorders. Um, Forty-two CFR, uh, which is a regulation, Part Two discusses the, the significant increased level of confidentiality for people who have a diagnosis of addiction and who are in active treatment. So for those of you who suffer around HIPAA and that you can't, you're having to sign HIPAA forms every time you go to the doctor's office or the pharmacy or the dentist's office, you have no idea how much more stringent 42 CFR Part 2 is in terms of the level of confidentiality. But I was just reading last night a discussion in one of the um, the trade journals for addiction medicine about the difficulty in doing that. Uh, in having that high, high, high level of confidentiality, what happens sometimes is that we are not able to, for example, tell family members if the patient has not given us written permission to do so, we can't tell them that their, pay- that their loved one has relapsed. We can't tell them that they're not taking their medication. So we are very restricted in being able to engage the very people who are around them, who love them and care for them, and who want to be part of their recovery. We are not able at times to be able to do that. And so the question was being raised, At what price are we protecting this confidentiality? Are Mm -hmm. there situations where people may be overdosing and dying because we are not able to clearly communicate uh, these kinds of relapse issues with their loved ones and their family? So there's um, all sides to this, and I think it's going to continue to be um, openly discuss the sharing of medical records is another problem.
2: But and it's so interesting because we really are pushing the concept that, or not even concept really, the 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 belief that this is a disease. Um, this is a disease of the brain, and and the the research is all pointing towards that, and we're able to point towards the brain that's activated by the diseases of addiction. So we push that this is um part, the same body that has a brain has a heart has a pancreas and it's it's all um, just illness and then at the same time we separate it out with but we have to have it extra confidential and we have to have extra special protections around this one little piece, even more so than psychiatric that right it's, an adolescent where where there's addiction as part of the diagnosis, has to specifically sign for release of information for his parents for even if they're paying for it
1: or for his insurance company or
2: for the insurance company
1: so if the child is really mad at his parents and decides he's going to um, make things more difficult for them he may or she may refuse to sign the um, release of information to the insurance company so that the insurance company never knows and certainly never pays for that treatment episode so uh, there's all sorts of complications, and um, in some states, the, uh, the young person has to actually voluntarily sign themselves in and can sign themselves out, Yeah, even under the age of 18.
2: And when you when you get bent into the history and you look back at, okay, this law exists because there are places in our country where the, the family is so chaotic and dysfunctional that the child would be in a very dangerous situation if they had to get their parents' permission to ask for help. Um at the same time, the rest of the the rest of the society is wanting um, this to be treated as an illness just like any other illness and and keeping those special precautions on there um, makes that more difficult
1: It really does and so i I do think we're going to continue to hear more about this debate and I think we'll be able to. Hopefully, have some um, thoughtful discussions around it. How much is too much to say, and when um, might people be uh, needing to open up more and ask for help, as well as ask for um, support from uh, their local community in fighting this potentially lethal, chronic brain disease.
2: Deadly, deadly, deadly brain deadly disease.
1: Brain disease. Part of what I wanted to talk about today, in light of Recovery Month, is learning um, about relapse and learning about relapse triggers because this is a, a relapsing disease. Now, not everyone who gets into treatment is going to have a relapse, but we know that anywhere from 40 to 60 percent of people who have at least one treatment for um, the disease of addiction are going to have a relapse. We're going to take a break. When we come back, we're going to talk about how that compares to other chronic illnesses and how do you know when your loved one may be on the road to relapse. Please stay tuned.
4: So call 770-696-9862 and speak to a knowledgeable staff member about how you or your loved one can be helped to enjoy a better and healthier life. More information is also available on the website at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com.
0: This is Dr. George. Join me Wednesday mornings for Medicine on Call and participate in a lively conversation. Learn what's happening behind the headlines in medicine understand Obamacare, and learn how to protect yourself and navigate the system.
3: Did you miss the show that you really wanted to hear? All of our programs are available for download on AmericasWebRadio.com and on iTunes. You can listen to your favorite programs on AmericasWebRadio.com anytime you like. The disease of addiction is a life-altering challenge. They can tailor a program specifically designed to address the needs of the person suffering with an addiction or give you guidance as to where that help may be found. Information is the key, and the trained staff at AHC is here to assist. If you wish, you can also get more information on the website located at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. This is
0: America's AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you.
1: Welcome back. This is Detailing Addiction. I'm Dr. Susan Blank, and I have with me David Donaldson, the CEO of the Atlanta Healing Center. We've been talking about National Recovery Month, prevention works, treatment is effective, and people recover. So for the month of September, their theme is Join the Voices for Recovery, Our Family, Our Stories, Our Recovery. And you can find more information on the SAMHSA website, which is www. S-A-M-H-S-A dot gov. Right before the break, we started to talk about one of the difficulties, I think, for a lot of people is they think treatment doesn't work because people relapse. And indeed, a lot of the statistics on relapse show that anywhere from 40 to 60% of people will relapse. And a lot of folks have this idea that this is one episode of care. I send you in for 28 days or whatever for your treatment and then you come home and everything should be fine. And if you relapse, then you have failed and that treatment has failed and that this is not a disease that can be managed and The whole system is a disaster. But when we look really at other chronic illnesses, um, there are similar relapse rates to type 1 diabetes, hypertension, asthma, these diseases are often poorly controlled. Patients will have a relapse, if you will, where they need more intensive treatment. They may need to go to the hospital. They may need additional medication. They may need additional dietary, um, emotional support. There's all kinds of things that need to happen when someone's diabetes is um, in relapse mode. So uh, the relapse rates for uh, addiction is not out of line at all for what we see for other chronic medical illnesses.
2: Well, and for me, I think that, that most of these medical illnesses that we talk about when we talk about relapse including addiction, have behavioral components to it. Mm-hmm. With diabetes, you have to change the way you eat. You have to, to man- monitor your sugars. You have to um, do several things to keep your Exercise. diabetes in, in check. Mm-hmm. With diabetes, you're, you're not really even going to a state of remission. You're just going to a state of, of balance. um, um with some of the other illnesses, they, they talk about getting to a state of remission and then hopefully never coming out of that and, and moving on. But with these things that you've got, these behavioral modifications that have to happen um, – Relapse is is always a possibility that's out there because we get stuck in our ruts and we get stuck mm-hmm. in our habits and and certain behaviors are just uncomfortable and we don't want to necessarily do them. I know for for a diabetic to always have to check their sugars becomes a pain and right
1: literally finding
2: <laughs> finding new places to check their their blood sugar. Um,
1: or new place uh, get to, to enjoy a point where
2: sometimes where they just become frustrated and, and quit mm-hmm. for a while they take breaks from their mm-hmm. their illness for a while which you know can have major consequences for them um, in terms of early organ damage and those kind of things um, and, and the same thing with with chemical dependency that people will get to a point where they're frustrated with all these things and they want to take a break um, and they have to realize how potentially um, critical that decision mm-hmm. could be.
1: Right. I think that it's um, a very interesting comparison because um, we do know that stress is probably one of the number one triggers for people to relapse. Yet... One thing that most people don't think about is one of the things that can drive your blood pressure up and out of control is chronic stress. Um, Your blood sugar is closely regulated by cortisol, our stress hormone. So if you are under stress, your blood sugar is going to go up in response to the elevated levels of cortisol. So stress plays a big role in relapse in many of these chronic illnesses, as does I just am tired of doing this, or I am in denial that I have this disease, or I'm all better now, so I don't need to take my medication. My blood pressure's been normal for the last six months. I must not need my medication. My depression is much better, so I must not need to take my medication. All of these things are very similar. These chronic illnesses have a lot of overlap in terms of the lifestyle changes people have to make, the frustration with having a chronic illness, and the role in which stress can play in resulting in a relapse that doesn't necessarily have to be because somebody wasn't taking good care of themselves. And um, I find it very... Comforting is probably the wrong word because no one wants to see any of these chronic illnesses out of control. But I think it's very uh, uh, validating to see that addiction isn't really that much different than Mm -hmm. other chronic illnesses. If you step back a little bit and take that judgment out of it that this is a problem with someone's willpower or their moral fiber or their character flaw. Mm
2: Well, and and the idea that when somebody has um, blood pressure issues or or blood sugar issues, that suddenly they're going to be accused of um, of of just wanting to go get drunk or you know just throwing um, just creating my blank my brain is just blank <laughs> on all of this. The idea that it's some moral moral situation that's led them to make this decision to to have a relapse into those illnesses um, we or we that they that. even had a choice right. putting it into you made this choice and so now you're sick that they which you say to addicts every time mm-hmm. that you hear of an addict having a relapse why did you why did you p- choose to pick up that first drink um, with the idea that when they were in that stressful situation and their brain was doing what it does that their act of choice, was was working, was connected, wired.
1: Mm-hmm. So we often say that relapse happens well before someone picks up their first drink or takes their first dose of a medication or smokes their first joint, that there have been a series of events that are often warning signs or um, situations that might give someone pause to think this is potentially a dangerous um, situation that you're in. And I think it's pretty common for most people to think about if you are depressed, if you've lost your job, if something sad or unfortunate has happened to you or a loved one, then that might be a time that you might be having the thoughts or the cravings and begin to want to use
0: drugs or alcohol.
2: Yeah, that, that's a, a common um, explanation that people will, will have when they answer the question, why did you have a drink, and, and they'll come back with, well, I was so tired or because i have been working these really long hours. Um, and, and it will become um, the excuse that's later thrown back at them that you just don't um, – do what you need to do to take care of your recovery because you're not um, making sure that you go to bed every night at 10 o'clock or you're not putting limits on your boss at work and telling him, no, you're only going to work 40 hours, so obviously you don't care about your recovery, and putting these just bizarre, unreasonable expectations on people mm-hmm. um, to, to have boundaries that we would never put on, on other people except in this scenario.
1: I think the other thing that is quite interesting, while we can understand someone being depressed or lonely or sad, triggering a craving and a thought and maybe even an actual relapse or or use of substance, but what we don't always recognize is that if it's a time of celebration, this may also be a risky time for a lot of people that their drinking was not when they were depressed and sad but their drinking was when they were having a great time at a party or a ball game or playing golf or being with friends and family that's when they drink and so being back at the beach or being back at a um, uh, at a function where they are used to drinking can be a relapse trigger when they're happy or when they've just been successful, they are more at risk.
2: Um, absolutely. Uh, and and some of the more recent research is showing that males in particular are, are prone to this particular trigger, that when they're around other people that are drinking and having a good time, their their brain is saying that they're supposed to be drinking and drinking a lot because this is a party and a celebration. Um, that same research points towards women tending to have a higher relapse rate when it comes to stress.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: That, that, what we were talking about earlier with the stressful situations for them becoming the drinking to escape, whereas for men, um, drinking to enhance the celebration is, uh, is a big trigger.
4: Right.
1: So you might not be thinking of those kinds of situations as putting your loved one or yourself at risk for relapse, but it's something to think about. One of the things that is often mentioned in um, 12-step recovery is the idea of people, places, and things that continuing to put yourself in this a similar situation where you used to drink or you hang out with your friends that you used to use with or you continue to have your stash. I'm using my air quotes here, your stash of alcohol or drugs that's hidden away just in case. These are the kinds of things that are often uh, triggers for people to have a relapse.
2: Well, And, and part of the emphasis on, on families recover too and families need to understand relapses and triggers is this, this whole situation we're talking about. There's, there's many stories of, of family members that are planning a party where um, it's a, the, the most classic would be a wedding, where there's going to be a wedding reception mm-hmm. and, and there's going to be a toast, or, or New Year's where there's going to be a toast at the end of the night and family members really want the whole situation to be fine and comfortable and normal so they'll actually say to their loved one well you can have one tonight because I'll be there and I'll make sure that you don't drink more than that and I'll make sure that you're fine and um, And then they're offended and hurt when the person has that one and then has a dozen more um, because they think that it was done to them personally as opposed to this brain that has just been reactivated Mm -hmm. did what brains that are reactivated do, and they drink and drink and drink without the shutoff.
1: I find another classic example uh, that we've heard the story way too many times where the young person turns 21. They may have been in recovery for a period of time. Um, Obviously, they were drinking or using drugs well before they were (laughs) legally supposed to. But now the family wants to take them out and let them celebrate in the way a 21-year-old would celebrate and have a drink. And again, the surprise and the shock when it may not be that night, but in the very near future, we'll see a relapse. When we come back, we're going to be talking more about relapse triggers and things you need to be thinking about.
0: Are your health insurance premiums going up? You are not alone. Visit us at ObamacareWatch.org to understand why and what you can do to get us back on the right track. This is Grace Marie Turner, President of the Galen Institute. Visit us at ObamacareWatch.org. This is Dr. George. Join me Wednesday mornings at 9 o'clock for Medicine on Call. On Medicine on Call, we talk about more than medicine. It's about how to take control of your mind, body, body
3: If you wish, you can also get more information on the website located at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. This is
0: America's AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you.
1: Welcome back. This is Detailing Addiction. I'm Dr. Susan Blank, and in honor of Recovery Month, we are talking about relapse and ways in which you might recognize some relapse triggers in yourself or your loved ones. So that before the break, we were talking about um, some of the people, places, and things. But one of the things that I see over and over again is an individual being confused about what having the disease of addiction means, and their idea is, I have a problem with heroin. My problem is with heroin, <coughs> not recognizing that they have a brain disease, and the problem is not the drug, the problem is that their brain does not handle substances, uh, as it would um, react in other people who don't have the disease of addiction and that any substance is their problem. So we often see the person who's the heroin addict or the person addicted to cocaine um, not recognizing that it's risky for them to smoke pot or it's risky for them to drink alcohol.
2: And I actually think that it's pretty much 100% of the people who are in recovery from heroin at some point are... Um, are going to are going to think that it's going to be okay to have a drink every now and then, or mm-hmm. that it's going to be okay to smoke marijuana, and that they'll be fine. That's it's a conversation that's going to come up. Um, I think because of an, one of the other triggers on there, there is such a need to be normal, mm-hmm. um, and, and that that is so strong that that when they're trying to get back into life,
0: mm-hmm.
2: whether it's when they're trying to date or if they're trying to. Um, be fit in at their job and and so many people at the job will go out for drinks after work that the recovering person has that strong desire to fit in with it to be normal is part of it um, but then also as you were saying that thinking that heroin is is where the problem was and it wasn't the um, problem with having one beer
1: and then recognizing that either now I've developed a problem with beer or that part of my brain has been awakened a bit by beer and now I remember what that felt like to get high and I want what really gets me high and that leading right back to using their drug of choice very quickly.
2: Yeah. Um, the the. All of these triggers really do come combined with each other, and, and real often when we're talking with patients about it, it's it's having them highlight the ones that are gonna gonna tick with each okay. other, um, because the wanting to do people, places, and things, um, and and hang out with people who um, are are normal drinkers. Mm-hmm. I think that those are actually much harder for a person in recovery than than going out and seeing somebody get drunk. They see a drunk person and it's like, oh, well, I used to be like that or, or, you know, thank God I'm not like that anymore. But when they see somebody that's drinking normally – their brain begins to watch to try to figure out what they're doing. Initially, um, and it was actually something that was talked about earlier in group today, a a patient was talking about being around normal drinkers and and watching them and um, this patient noticed that they ordered a drink and they ordered appetizers at the same time and they would take a sip of their drink and then they would eat some food um, which was just appalling that they would put food <laughs> in their stomach when, when they should be um, allowing the alcohol to do what it's supposed to do. Um, but the, the big thing that struck this person was that the alcohol, the one cocktail had sat on the table for close to 45 minutes that should have been at least three cocktails in that time frame. But this one drink had been on the table for 45 minutes. Um, and, and so intellectually, this person was in a dangerous challenge place watching these people drink like that. But then the the emotional triggers begin kicking mm-hmm. in of how, how annoying and how frustrating that somebody would be able to drink like that. And why could I never drink like that? And um, it becomes a, a really, um, the person's triggered in so many different areas by that point that it becomes awfully dangerous.
1: really does, and it's something that you wouldn't think. You would think that the, the normal drinkers or the social users would be more safe, and yet often that's not the case. The situation can be just as dangerous, if not more dangerous, because the person believes, well, I could do that. I can drink like that. That.
2: there's nothing so dang- so unique about how they're doing that i can make myself just drink like that and it'll be fine
1: mm-hmm.
2: um the, the classic story from from the recovery literature is is um an alcoholic mixing it with milk so that it would coat his <laughs> stomach and then he wouldn't get as drunk so fast and, and and bad story that person is once again passed out in the bar and creating scenes Um, just like always
1: just like always another um, trigger is dishonesty And we see this over and over again where people start keeping secrets. They may not be secrets related to drug use at all, but other secrets. Well, I've spent a little too much money, so I'm not going to tell my spouse about that. Or I'm going to be doing some other things at work, and my boss won't know. I'll just keep my real work paper on top of it while I'm doing my taxes or whatever, that they start to have little secrets and they start to tell little white lies or some bigger whopper white lies. Um, This kind of behavior is often associated with drug and alcohol use. They've had to keep their use secret. Mm-hmm. They've hidden things. They've told stories about it to their loved ones or their boss or their family doctor. And they. Um, this kind of behavior begins to be that same thinking, which leads them to craving and wanting to use.
2: But, and it, it becomes that same thinking, but it also begins to set up separations. Uh So they begin to not be able to talk openly with their support system because if you have a secret, um, then conversations become tailored around making sure that secret stays a secret and so you know if you've got a secret about your shopping and somebody wants to ask you about why you were over at Macy's you have to become even more creative uh, creative about covering up your secret and suddenly that person's no longer safe Um, um, and I think it also brings up why people want to say that addiction is a, it's a moral disease and why they're making these choices when in, in, in reality this one little white lie that lots of other people might say also with no consequence for the addict and alcoholic has a major consequence because, because isolation mm-hmm. leads to going back and, and, and back to using
1: Absolutely. I think another one that is um, interesting is being overconfident. And we certainly see this in folks in early recovery where they're pretty sure they can handle this major event or they can hang out with this particular person and they just have no idea. The dangerous situation they're putting themselves in.
2: And they really get to a point where they don't believe they don't need all of the support.
1: Right. <laughs>
2: I don't need to go to as many that many meetings because I really do got this.
1: I got it. I'm going to get back to normal and I can handle it.
2: And just as soon as someone's thinking that they got this, their need to work a program and to take care of their recovery process goes away.
1: So um Being around people who love you. Now, this would not necessarily (laughs) uh, be recognized, particularly by the people who love you, uh, as a, a relapse trigger. But family relationships, particularly when there's still some stress and the family has not done the healing work they need to do, and their expectation of... Uh, the individual in recovery begins to create very stressful situations, and we see this all the time.
2: All the time. And, and it's a really predictable um, mm-hmm. pattern that, that patients and family members are going to go through when a patient enters treatment or first comes home from treatment if they've been away. They tend to have about 30 days sometimes a little bit less sometimes a little bit more but they have a bit of time where the family members are just being really nice and really caring and, and not happy. adding any stress <laughs> and very very happy um and at the same time the family members stress level is building up because they know that they're just letting things go and they're walking around on eggshells and the fam then the patient in early recovery their stress level is building up because they know this isn't the <laughs> The person that they've loved all these years, they know that person's furious at him and wants to kill him. Um, So they know there's all this silence going on. And there's going to be an eruption shortly around – right around that 30-day point that if they're not prepared – they're going to end up um, having having a major very difficult time period a big they old need meltdown. they need to be using their support system going to meetings um, taking their medications and their family members need to be doing the same right. to help prepare for this and to help um, to hopefully get to a point of reality quicker rather than later
1: I think the um, the word halt is very helpful. Hungry, angry, lonely, tired, make sure you don't get any of those. And when we think about preventing relapse, uh, an individual needs to know their own triggers have their support system to help them avoid the triggers avoid the people places and things that make you want to use attend your therapy or support groups and avoid exposure to drugs and alcohol even if you think they're not your problem we wish you all a great recovery month and we will see you next week on detailing addiction
0: this is America's Webradio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you